If you would, please open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 and beginning to see the, the Pentecost event that takes place in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that not just this evening, but uh, the next uh, two or three evenings. It's going to be a little bit out of the ordinary, out of the order um, next week, David King is going to preach, and he's going to preach the ending of chapter 2. After that, I will be back, and I will preach what immediately follows verse 13, the middle of Acts chapter 2. There was a little bit of switching around that took place. And so we'll spend uh, about three weeks looking and thinking about the Pentecost event. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through verse 13. Luke records, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that on that day so long ago, you were gracious and you poured out your Holy Spirit. That we might be indwelt believers. That we might not be believers on our own but filled with the power and strength of Christ through his gospel in the mighty work of his spirit who dwells within us. Lord, we are so thankful that your Holy Spirit is with us, not just for a moment, but always filling us and guiding us and leading us into all truth. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work amongst us even now to glorify Christ in our midst that we would enjoy him and love him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pentecost is a greatly significant act. When you think about Pentecost, you can actually sort of put it up with all of the other great redemptive acts of God. If you were to list out all of the great times that God has acted, you could think of the Exodus, and you could think of the building of the temple. And you could even think of, in the New Testament, the incarnation and the life of Christ and the atonement at the cross. 
the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost goes on the list right next to all of those great redemptive acts of God. Why? Because Pentecost is the dawning of a new age. It is the beginning of the age of the new covenant, the outpouring of God's grace for all of the nations of the world. It's the time when God poured out his spirit. Without Pentecost, our salvation is not complete. Pentecost is necessary. It's fundamental. So we just have two points this evening that relate to Pentecost. First, what happened? What's going on? Uh, The facts of the matter. Secondly, why is Pentecost significant? We'll look at two uh, theological themes that are uh, brought alive in the Pentecost events. So what happened and why is it significant? We'll start with the first, what happened? Well, as we jump back into the story, what's been going on up to now? We've seen that Jesus has ascended to the Father gloriously in chapter 1. And before he did so, he has issued his command. It's very clear, it's very straightforward. Take this gospel of mine and take it to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, that command is summarized as make disciples, baptizing them in the Trinitarian name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that was a great command, one that would be almost overwhelming, impossible to complete in any function for these men. And so with the command comes a promise. Jesus would go, but he would send his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit would come and perform several functions among them. He would remind them of all that Christ has said and done. He would strengthen them and he would convict the world of sin. We're told in John chapters 15 and 16. That is, as the preaching of the gospel goes forth, what is it that's going to cut to the heart? What is, it, what is it that's going to bring men to their knees and see their need of Christ? It is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus commanded them, wait until the Spirit comes. And in the meantime, what do they do? Well, we've already seen what the apostles have been doing. They've been gathering They've been worshiping and devoting themselves to prayer, getting themselves ready in every way because they know once the Spirit comes, everything is going to kick off into motion. It'll be the real work finally at last. Once Pentecost comes, everything is going to change forever. And so they wait, and they wait until the day of Pentecost. Now, what is Pentecost? What is that day signifying, or what is the purpose of that day, at least as it was understood on their side of history. Well, as the name suggests, it is 50 days after Passover. That's what Pentecost means. It's 50 days after Passover. And in the Old Testament, that feast of Pentecost was called the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. And most basically, it was one of those feasts in the Old Testament that celebrated the first fruits of the harvest of God. It was a joyous feast. It was a glad celebration 
anticipating all that was to come in the future harvest. They're tasting the first fruits of what they've grown, knowing that something much better is to come. And you know, we're good Calvinists in this room. We know that God doesn't have any coincidental things. No, he planned this specifically. The Spirit of God would come, not on any day, but specifically on the day of Pentecost, showing us the first fruits of this glorious new age of Christ, showing us everything we should expect in increasing measure more and more throughout the new covenant. So what happens on that day of Pentecost? Well, we read in our text this. The disciples are gathered in a home, and then suddenly something happens. Look with me at verses 2 through 4. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we see this remarkable event as they're in the house. And what happens? Well, first, a great manifestation of God's power appears. The Spirit comes and you see all of these strange physical phenomena start to occur. And Luke is trying to describe exactly what it was like on that day. And he uses several similes. He tells us, for example, that when the Spirit came, it was like a mighty rush of wind, and everything in the house was blowing about, rushing all through everything in the house. He then tells us there were tongues like fire resting on each of the disciples there, causing them to speak in tongues. He's using these similes because he's telling us this is something that is rather difficult to describe. Luke might even tell us, well, you just had to be there. It was remarkable. It was incredible what happened on that day. But we should also note that these phenomena are significant. They are echoes of Old Testament theophanies of God. That is, in the Old Testament where you saw a physical manifestation of the power or the glory of God, fire and wind. Those were great Old Testament theophanies. And what they tell us is rather simple. God is here and he's going to do something remarkable. So we see these events and we also see an amazing miracle, the speaking in tongues. Now, There is a little bit of confusion here when we address the topic of the apostles speaking in tongues. Some will look at this and think to themselves, what exactly is the miracle going on here? So, for example, some people will say that this is a miracle of speaking. They'll look at this and they'll say, well, it seems like the miracle is that each apostle is speaking in a language that they do not know. So, for example, Peter all of a sudden starts talking in Spanish or talking in Latin, or talking in some other language. Each apostle perhaps taking on a different language. It would be a miracle of speaking. Others look at this and they say, well, perhaps it is a miracle of hearing, that the apostles are speaking their own language, Aramaic, and everyone else around them is miraculously hearing that language as their own. 
And some people, for example, would look at verses 6 through 8 and conclude that. This is what it says. It says that at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Now, frankly, whether it's a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing is not the most important thing. In fact, I don't actually know which one of the two it is. I go back and forth. But whatever the precise nature of the miracle is, the purpose is extremely clear, isn't it? We see that purpose described in verse 11. That both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The point of the miracle was that these barriers of language are bypassed. That the multitudes of people gathered there could all of a sudden hear and be told what? The mighty works of God. See, I think this is crucial. The miracle of tongues really isn't so much about the languages. But they're highlighting the message of the word. And when we take the, the miracle itself, the, the medium, the language, and make that central, we're obscuring God's purpose. And that's a word that's relevant, I think, today. There are so many that are interested, theoretically, uh, in the speaking of tongues, or even, in their mind, practically. You see, some in the church will insist on the speaking of tongues, they will insist that those who are truly spiritual, you know, a notch above the rest, they will speak in glorious tongues. Others, for example, will say that they speak the language of angels. Others will claim that they have a unique access to God with a language unknown to anyone else, that they speak to God directly by these tongues. Yet some others babble incoherently, Speaking, frankly, nonsense. Calling it spiritual language. And we should be clear. All of those things are not biblical. And rather, they take the focus off of God's revealed word. And it puts the focus onto ourselves. But what do we see? This miracle of tongues points to Jesus. He is what's most important. Not the miracle, but the gospel. Well, this is what happened at Pentecost. The Spirit came and the gospel of Jesus Christ was put front and center. Well, secondly, why is this Pentecost event so significant? What's so important about the miracle and the pouring out of the Spirit on that day? Just two things to, to cover this. First... Pentecost shows us the glory of the new covenant. That is, in the new covenant, we are brought closer to the glory of God than in any prior covenant. This is the final covenant, fulfilling God's mighty and wonderful, gracious covenant. 
And this has been done through the work of Christ and through the Spirit of Christ. We see this in the text. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God fills the entire house. Every square inch of that building was filled up with the Spirit. Even more significant, the believers themselves are filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I are filled, completely brimming to the top with the Holy Spirit. And this is incredibly significant in the New Covenant age. And I think to properly see that, we actually need to go back to our Old Testament for just a moment to, to see this in all of its glory. You see, in the Old Covenant, it is true that God was present with his people. In fact, he was present to bless them richly. He was present in his covenants. He was present to save them by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. All that is true. He was seen in theophanies. He was spoken of by prophets. He was covenantally bound up to his people there with them all of the time. But also in the Old Covenant, you saw a clear distinction between God and his people. And you saw this in various ways throughout the Old Testament. For example, think of Moses when God has appeared to the people uh, at Mount Sinai. It's Moses alone who can go up to the top of Mount Sinai. The people, they cannot go. And even Moses could not see the glory of God. We see this in other places that the worship of God, always for the people in the Old Covenant, was mediated by priests, by a sacrificial system, and things of that nature. I'll point to two specific things that I think are the most important. Remember the tabernacle and the temple. Do you remember when those uh, buildings were completed and then dedicated? Do you remember what happened when they were completed? Well, we're told that they were filled with the glory of God. So much so that the priests had to get out. They could not get in the door. They were not allowed in. We see this in Exodus 40, for example, when the tabernacle is built. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we see something very similar when the temple is dedicated by Solomon in 1 Kings 8. We're told, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud, same as the tabernacle, filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You almost get the impression that it wasn't just that the priests didn't want to enter. They couldn't even if they wanted to. The message was clear. When God's glory came, man could not dwell there. It was too holy. It was too bright. It was too good. And we were too sinful. Now, under the new covenant, we are, as it were, in the temple. In the tabernacle. Notice the house is filled with the glory of God there at Pentecost. 
The disciples are filled and we are filled as well. This is pointing us to a rather dramatic theological truth. That is, we have come close to the glory in this new covenant. We see the glory of God. We know it and we experience it in Christ completely. Rather, that's what John himself hinted at in his own gospel. Our pastor touched on this topic uh, perhaps a year ago when he preached on John chapter 1. And we get a hint of that reality there. In John 1, we're told this, that the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. We're seeing something here at Pentecost that in giving you his spirit, Christ shared his most precious gift, a direct view to the glory and the goodness of God, all of it yours in Christ in this glorious new covenant. Well, that's the first thing. We're, we're brought close to the glory of God in Christ Secondly, Pentecost shows the saving scope of the new covenant. Pentecost highlights unity, doesn't it? The Spirit unites us because Christ unites us. And we see this displayed powerfully in the miracle of tongues. On that day, every language, every ethnicity, every person there could hear the gospel. They were all brought together, not by themselves, not by their own wisdom, not by their own power, but by the powerful preaching of the gospel and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We see this emphasized again in the text. Look at verses 8 through 11. This is the multitude speaking. And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Do you see what's going on there? This miracle of God has broken down all of these existing barriers. It has included all of them in the grace of Christ. And Jesus promised that, didn't he? The gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The principle there is that his grace would go to the Jews and it would go to the Gentiles. Now do note that these people are from all of these different nations, but we're specifically told that they are Jews. We see that in verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Likely, they are dispersed Jews, sent out, exiled away, and living in a different place. And what this is showing us is that pattern that Christ has set is certainly coming true. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's the beginning of something so much greater. 
He's showing them in a powerful way through the filling of these Jews from all over the world that this gospel is about to be sent forth. This gospel is being propelled and nothing, not languages, no earthly barrier, no earthly power is going to stop its spread. In fact, of great interest to me, many have looked at this text and they've noted that it's so similar in parallel to a great Old Testament event, the Tower of Babel. You might be thinking, well, the Tower of Babel wasn't a good thing, but just bear with me for a moment. Remember what was going on there. Humanity had come together, as it were, but not for godly purposes. They came together to exalt themselves. In their sin, they were arrogant and prideful. Their great goal was to usurp authority and power from God. And God at that time punished them how? By confusing their language and forcing them to be scattered and dispersed all across the world. Here at Pentecost, you're seeing a reversal of that curse. The curse is being repealed. The nations through Christ are being brought together again. People from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all praising God in Christ. And we need to see that that hope of a united world under Christ is fundamental to all of the scriptures. It's, it's not a hope that appears once we get to the New Testament. But rather it's there from the very beginning. We could think of the cultural mandate. Adam and Eve were called to fill the whole earth, have lots of kids, fill the earth, make it full of the glory of God. We can look then at the Abrahamic covenant, and we're told that the gospel will be through him and to all of the families of the earth. We can look at Moses and Israel at that time, and they were called to be a priestly nation, a nation of teachers. They were to bless those around them and teach them the holy law of God. You look at the prophets and you see much language about banners being raised up in Israel one day. That one day the nations will pour into Israel and Jerusalem. The banner will be raised high. Mountains will be leveled. All of the paths will be set. A highway from Assyria to Egypt and on and on and on. Even when you open up the New Testament, you see in the prophet Simeon, when he sees Christ, here's what he says in Luke 2. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so all of it's been leading here. And now Christ in his glory has sent his church on a mission Bring the gospel to the nations. And once again, he has not left us alone in that task. He's given us everything that we need. His powerful spirit. And if you want to see how valuable the Holy Spirit is, you can just peruse to the end of Acts chapter 2. And after one single sermon that Peter preaches, and Peter of all people, 3,000 men are saved. Multitudes are brought in. Men of every nation. And here, Pentecost is showing us, boy, that's just the beginning. That's, that's barely a drop in the bucket. 
compared to everything that God is going to do, that is the first fruits. We're just tasting a little bit of what God is going to accomplish. Pentecost reminds us about the mission of the church. It is about the ingathering of God's people. It is about us proclaiming Christ to the world and living in witness to him in humble reliance upon the Spirit. Dear people, do not forget that mission. That mission is always in danger of being forgotten and neglected. But remember what Christ is doing. In conclusion, the Pentecost event is truly amazing. We see that God's Spirit is now here and with us to stay forever. We see that the new covenant began, and it began with a bang. You and I, in this covenant, are brought close to God. In the temple itself, filled with the glory of God. And here in this new covenant, the mission of God has become front and center. Take the gospel to the nations. Make disciples who will know and love Jesus Christ. Let's pray.